Hi, I'm Matt Abrahams, author of the book Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, and you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast. My goal in this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today I'm joined by Matt Abrahams, and we're going to talk about his book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, 50 Techniques for Confident, Calm, and Competent Presenting. The title on Matt Abrahams' business card is Lecturer in Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Matt is also the co-founder of Bold Echo Communication Solutions, a presentation skills consulting practice that specializes in helping speakers become more confident and compelling. Matt, congratulations on speaking up without freaking out, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. I love the way you say the title of my book. The gusto and energy you put into that is fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, it, you know, uh, the, the title is great, and it really speaks to the fact that freaking out is just, it just goes with the territory, I think. And uh, it, it, I thought it nicely captured that. Speaking of freaking out, let me just read one excerpt from the book to set the stage here, and we'll go from there. Presenting in public, even when a speaker is prepared and practiced, can lead to dramatic and traumatic outcomes. For this reason, the Book of Lists has repeatedly reported that the fear of speaking in public is the most frequent answer to the question, what scares you the most? In fact, people rate speaking anxiety 10 to 20% higher than the fear of death, the fear of heights, the fear of spiders, and the fear of fire. As a student of mine once joked, people would rather stand naked while on fire overlooking a 30-story fall covered with spiders and snakes, then give a speech. Matt, why is the fear of speaking always rated so much higher than those other kind of awful things? That's a wonderful question, Doug, and I wish I could give you the answer. Academics have struggled with trying to pinpoint exactly why. There are lots of theories about why people are nervous in front of others. Everything from skills deficit, we just don't have enough practice or skills to do it, to evolutionary theories that say when we're up in front of people, we're putting our status at risk, and that status is very important. And we're not talking status like who drives the BMW or Tesla. It's, it's status in a hierarchy from an evolutionary past where it would mean life or death, literally. So and other theories such as learning theories say we, we at some point in our lives learned either by our own experience or watching others that speaking in front of others is, is dangerous or risky. So we don't really know why. And, and ultimately, it's an academic inquiry as to why. I think what's most important is just knowing that there are ways to learn to manage that anxiety. It's an intellectual activity to try to figure out the, the reason why. But the, the practical thing is we feel it and we need to learn how to manage it. Mm -hmm. Now, Matt, this is the Marketing Book Podcast, and the listeners are used to hearing about books, maybe with the word marketing in it, in the title. And I just wanted to make a link between marketing and public speaking. And 
this is the first time I've quoted from someone else's book, but this is really central to marketing. And I just wanted to read one short passage from Joe Polizzi's book, Epic Content Marketing. And he's the president of the Content Marketing Institute. And this is a best-selling book on uh, content marketing. And he says, After my blog and my books, public speaking events have probably led more to growing the business than anything else I've done. Frankly, there are not enough businesses that take presenting in public as a serious driver of revenue. As a business owner or a marketing professional, it is your responsibility to start cultivating evangelists within the company who can spread the content mission of your organization. Matt, are you seeing more and more companies start to realize this and trying to take advantage of speaking opportunities? Yes, I am. Uh, part of my consulting practice that has really, really grown is helping people figure out how to communicate their message effectively in a compelling manner in terms of marketing themselves, marketing their company, marketing them the their business or themselves as thought leaders in the space. It, it's almost a prerequisite now to really establishing your brand, be it your personal brand or your corporate brand, to be doing more and more speaking events. So let's talk about anxiety. Is anxiety about speaking normal? Uh, absolutely it is. I, I believe it is. most people experience it. And the ones who say they don't, I think we could create situations where they would feel that anxiety. In my career, my, my long career of working with people to become more confident and competent speakers, I've only met one individual who was truly devoid of anxiety around speaking. And I have to tell you, he was the most boring, dry, bland speaker ever. Anxiety is actually beneficial. It helps you focus. It gives you energy. It tells you what you're doing is important. But we need to learn to manage it so it doesn't manage us. Uh, now, let's talk just a bit about the book, just for the, for the listener to understand. First off, it's a small book, meaning it's, it's only five by seven inches. I noticed it fit in the pocket of my blazer. So I was... <laughs> I don't know if you had that in mind, like if you wanted people to carry it with you, but it's also just over 100 pages. And I don't want people to be deceived by that. It is super concentrated. You could have added water and made it 300 pages real easily. And I think it's probably harder to write a short book, but it's it's got all kinds of you know information there and, and practical tips. And I, I marked it all up. I'm sorry, but I... <laughs> I hope you don't want this copy back. So that's Doug. That was all by design uh, for several reasons. One, this book was born out of a need I found in my students, in particular. They would come to my classes. I teach at the Graduate School of Business and elsewhere, and we would teach strategic communication and lots of really important marketing and business communication approaches. And at the end of the quarter, we'd say, you know, what are you leaving with? And they'd say, oh, all these great ideas, but it's really hard for me to implement them because I'm just so darn afraid of getting up and speaking my mind and telling my story. And after hearing that repeatedly, I went out and said, okay, I'm going to find a resource to help my students because we got to get them over this hurdle so they can then employ all these wonderful things that we're teaching them. And the reality was there wasn't anything out there like it. And when I started asking business professionals, marketing professionals, sales professionals, 
how they dealt with their anxiety, what, what resources did they use, they couldn't point me to anything. So the book was born out of a, a need that I saw in my classroom and I was hearing from my consulting practice and friends and colleagues in the corporate world. And they said when they need it, they need it and they need it fast. And so the book was designed to be read very quickly to give very useful, practical, applicable tips. There's several things in the book that say, try this, and it means try it now. Mm -hmm. The idea being that you could have the book in your pocket, as you said, literally, getting on a plane on the East Coast, flying out here where I am on the West Coast, and you can read the book in the time of the flight and actually have some techniques that you can deploy when you land and have to give a presentation. So the book was designed to be highly applicable and to be digestible, in a way that, that people can then employ quickly. Can we touch a bit on some of the techniques? There's so many in here, but some of the techniques that you talk about in the book to help people feel uh, less nervous and reduce their anxiety. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about several techniques. So the book lists over 50 techniques that are academically verified to work. There are a myriad of techniques that people can employ, and, and my challenge to everybody who reads the book or wants to manage their anxiety is to find two or three that work for you. Not every technique will work for every person. Some are more physical, things like taking deep breaths, taking breaths right before you speak can calm the autonomic nervous symptoms that we experience when we have anxiety such as the rapid heart rate or the shakiness or the perspiration that happens, all the way through cognitive techniques that involve reframing how you see the situation. So many of us see speaking as performing. We feel like we have to do it right when in fact there is no one right way to speak. There are better ways and worse ways. So if we learn to see speaking as a conversation and most of us are not nervous when we have a conversation, that can help. And there's some guidance in the book about how to do that. It's not just say it's a conversation. You actually have to do some explicit practice to, to make it feel that way. To another technique, which is just going inside yourself and, and really reflecting on how realistic the, your fears are. So sometimes simply writing your fears down and then really evaluating, is that likely to happen? And if it were to happen, what is the worst result that would come from it? And that's a process called rationalization that can help. So there are a myriad of techniques, everything from something very physical to something very rational and cognitive to, to something that's more a, a reframing approach to it. And you also talk about technique where you engage with the audience, and I can't remember the... Oh, ACT, Audience right. Connecting Techniques. Right. So audience connecting techniques are a way to get your audience engaged and participating in your presentation. For many speakers, having the spotlight on them is what really makes them nervous. So if there's a way we can share the spotlight, meaning getting the audience involved, that takes a lot of pressure off. And it can be something as simple as taking a poll in the middle of your presentation or starting that way. How many of you have ever, and people will raise their hand and you comment on that and say, that's what I thought. And all of a sudden you are participating with the audience. It can be something uh, such as showing a video clip and, and having everybody watch the video and then facilitating a discussion of what they've seen. Those audience connecting techniques share the spotlight. They diffuse the anxiety because it's no longer just about you. It's about the interaction. And many people feel much more comfortable when they're 
facilitating an interaction than when they are the, the sole person who is presenting information. There were several parts of the book where, when I read it, I thought back to keynotes where I've attended conferences or I've, I've watched them on YouTube, <laughs> and I was saying, that's what he's doing. Ah, you're, you're, there's a little bit of pulling back of the curtain here for me on, on some of these techniques. Yeah, yeah and, you're, and you're not alone in that. People watch TED Talks, they watch keynotes, and, and when they see the little things that people are doing, and many of the techniques in my book are, are just little things you do. Take a poll here, use an analogy there, take a pause or move in this direction at this time. But they make a big difference in how your audience feels. And you can literally check, check them off as you watch them. And all these good speakers, these speakers that people look up to and are motivated by, are using these techniques. And, and that's what helps them look confident and, and helps them connect their message to their audience. Mm -hmm. Even uh, parts where they're... People are doing the Q and A. You've got an appendix on how to how to handle Q and A, and it was really interesting. And I'm already borrowing ideas from it. Great, Matt. Let me just read one other small part. And for me, it was my favorite part of the book. You know, the, the one where the biggest light bulb went off overhead. I found it really helpful, and it was page 48. And I just want to paraphrase two parts here. Many speakers assume that giving a presentation is about them as speakers. A better, more thorough approach to your presentation is to begin by focusing on the audience. Competent speakers never ask themselves, what do I want to say? Instead, they ask, what does my audience need to hear or learn? These two questions might sound similar, but they are very different. Can you talk more about that? Yes, and, and I, you picked up something that I feel is really, really critical in the book and, and in the approach that I recommend, uh, and that is, as a speaker, your job is to be in service of your audience. We typically feel that our job is to convey the knowledge, the expertise that we have, and that's part of it, but we need to make sure that we do so in a way that's meaningful and connected to our audience. And the only way to get there is to be in service of that audience and to ask ourselves that fundamental question is, what does my audience need? And when you start from that perspective, that audience-centric approach, you, you need to do reconnaissance. You need to really think about who your audience is. Many people create one presentation and they go out and give that same presentation regardless of who they're up in front of. And really, you need to fine-tune and hone your message so that it resonates with your audience. So you need to think about what is their knowledge, what's their, what are their expectations, their attitudes. These are all the things we need to think about in advance of actually creating the content. And if you do that, you will have a message that is much more meaningful and much more connected to your audience. And therefore, it will have greater impact your audience will be more engaged and more involved, and that will make you feel better and less anxious about it. So it's, it's a wonderful, virtuous cycle when you take the time to be audience-centric. Now, a few other things uh, in the book I noticed. Maybe only I would notice it, but uh, at one, one point you said it's not a good idea to drink alcohol before speaking. <laughs> yes. Matt, I got to be honest, that was news to me. Now, I don't really drink before I speak. That was a joke, of course. But I, I did read that, and I thought, well, you know, he, 
he teaches students. He's dealing with graduate students. Um, I don't know. But let's move on and talk a little bit about PowerPoint. You talk about how PowerPoint, you know, is the best and probably the worst thing to happen to speakers. And PowerPoint meaning presentation software like Prezi or uh, right. Keynote or something like that, but we're using PowerPoint. You say it should not come first. It's like a pastry chef spending hours icing a cake without regard for the quality of the cake itself. Absolutely. So we we have mesmerized ourselves with slides. And, you know, talking about successful marketing, all of these companies that sell slide software have done a great job of convincing us that a presentation is a slide deck, so much so that when I do my consulting, I'll go into some firms where they won't even say I'm giving a presentation. They'll say I'm giving a deck. And my perspective, again, it comes back to that audience focus. It's about your message being tailored to your audience. Slides are for your audience. They're there to help them better understand your material, to augment what you're saying, to visually represent ideas. And that's very important. But we don't start with slides. You can get very mesmerized by creating slides and and becoming a graphic designer. And that's I'm not saying anything bad about graphic designers. My brother is one. But the point is, you need to focus on the story first. Story first, slide second. Most people I work with create their slides first, and they go and grab every slide that they've ever done or their uh, companions or colleagues have created. They fuse it all together in what I call a Franken-deck, much like Frankenstein pieced together from various things. And then they deliver it, and they wonder why it's not authentic, it's not engaging, people get bored. It's because they haven't taken the time to actually think of the story first. So I am a big fan of using slides to help augment a message, but they come last and they are in service of your audience, not for you as the speaker. I was reminded of some big keynotes I've seen where the uh, people like Gary Vaynerchuk and Simon Sinek and Malcolm Gladwell, not a single slide. Yes. Isn't that impressive? Well, and, and, I didn't even notice it until after I read your book. I thought, wait a minute, those guys don't even use slides. And right. so it seemed like if you, the more that you can do to prepare your presentation as if you're not going to have slides, it might be better. That was the sort of the approach that I'm, I'm going to start taking is that I'm just trying to put together the whole idea and the outline rather than worrying about slides. And I, I applaud you for that approach for, for two reasons. One, it makes you really focus on story. And two, we have all been in situations where technology gets in the way. And when the technology gets in the way, it makes it really challenging. You know, if the, if the slides don't work, the projector bulb burns out, whatever, uh, you need to be able to give the presentation without the slides. So if you have a story and you're well versed in that story, you can add the slides if necessary. It also seems to get the speaker away from the podium and and walking around the mm-hmm. audience as well. Absolutely, it does. It, it helps people uh, get more engaged. Uh, people stay, become very connected to the screen. And, and when you're a nervous speaker, it's comforting to know that your audience is looking elsewhere, but it's not having the impact that you would like. And there are many other ways to engage your audience, to, to get them involved, to share that spotlight, as we talked about earlier, without have it being just staring at slides. Right. Last thing I wanted to ask you about was what you call verbal graffiti. Uh-huh. Yes. 
and I'm sure I've had enough of it in this interview. Uh, that's the the ums, the ahs, and all that type of thing. And you mentioned a couple of techniques for trying to address your verbal graffiti. Can you touch on those? Yes. So nobody plans to say lots of ums and uhs. And interestingly, from an academic point of view, they are ubiquitous. Across culture, people say something as filler words, that verbal graffiti. Sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's ah, but it's prevalent. It's omnipresent. So it's not just you. It's not just, you know, a nervous speaker who says it. The first way to manage it is to become aware of it. Many of us are not aware that we say it until after the fact. So anything you can do to highlight that you're doing it, so you become aware of when you're saying the disfluent word or sound, you know you've just done it. And then you can become aware of when you're about to do it. So there are lots of ways to become aware. One can be to ask somebody. Every time I say, um, raise your hand. Or you can record yourself and listen for it. That's part of awareness. The other piece around this is for many people, it is a breathing issue. We tend to say the most ums or disfluent sounds between major thoughts. And these are the ones that are most noticeable as well. As we're transitioning in our mind from one piece of our content to another piece, we fill the void with an um. And part of it is because of breathing. When we finish a thought, most of us don't have the vocal stamina, the breath to get through an entire thought. So we catch air at the end. We'll take an inhalation towards the end of our phrase or sentence. What that means is when we complete the sentence, we still have air inside us. And in order to say the next sentence, we have to exhale. Speaking is an exit-only event. It only happens as you exhale. People listening to this can practice. They can say the word um while exhaling, and then I challenge them to say the word um while inhaling. You can't. You can't say anything while taking a breath in. So if you train yourself to finish your sentences on an exhalation, such as I am doing right now, I'm out of breath. I need to inhale before I can start my next phrase. Because I'm inhaling, I can't say a disfluent sound. So the two best ways to manage that verbal graffiti are one, to become aware of it. So you know when you're doing it and ultimately will know before you're doing it so you can manage it. And then the second is to work on your breathing so that when you end your phrases or sentences, you're out of breath. I don't mean you're quiet. I just mean you've exited all the air from your lungs such that you then have to inhale before you start speaking again. And that gets rid of those ums that come between your thoughts and phrases. Let me take a deep breath. Just kidding. Matt, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That you have a sense of agency in your anxiety, that you can manage it, and that managing it has many benefits. Not only does it make you feel better, it makes you feel more confident, and it allows your message to come across in a more compelling and engaging way. So everyone should take the time to manage their anxiety, figure out techniques that can work for them so that they can become much more comfortable when speaking. It takes time, but with it come great benefits. I like to say everybody has a story to tell. Everybody has something important to share. We have to learn to manage our anxiety so we can let that story be part of the dialogue that happens around us. I found that understanding what produces the anxiety is helping me reduce it. 
I just didn't know why I was, you know, why myself or, or anyone else was, was was so anxious until I started to have it broken down, even to the part where you alluded to earlier about even even the cavemen. Right. They had reasons why they were nervous about speaking. I have a quick story about that, Doug. I, I ran into somebody who, who said, oh, you're the guy who wrote that book. And I said, yes. And I said, what did you think? He said, oh, I didn't read it. I said, so why are we having this conversation? It's a bizarre experience. And he said, just knowing that a book like that exists helps me feel better simply because it makes me realize two things. I'm not alone in my anxiety because a lot of us feel like we're the only ones because we see other people do a great job speaking. We feel like they're not nervous, but they are. And then two, he said, I know that if I need to go to find techniques, I will have them there available for me. So I totally understand what you're saying. Just understanding that you're not alone and understanding that techniques exist can really help you feel better about your anxiety. It's like a support group in a book. There you go. I like that. I might use that to market my uh, my next edition. There you go. There you go. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions that are popular with the listeners. Is there a recent book related to your field that you have read and, and recommend? Thanks for asking. So one of the things that I do in my classes that I teach and the workshops I run as a consultant is we talk about how to be uh, maximally persuasive, how to, how to influence people. And obviously confidence is part of that. There's a great book that, I, that I've just started reading. It's called The Small Big, Small Changes That Spark Big Influence. And it's by Martin Goldstein and Cialdini, obviously Cialdini of, of you know, the famous pantheon of of marketing and persuasion. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really a, a great uh, a read. It's, it's engaging and it gives lots of techniques to help people feel more confident when they are trying to influence others and uh, motivate others to do things that they'd like them to do. So I, I'm very much in, enjoying the small big. That sounds great. And with Robert Cialdini involved, you know it's going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Any books you're looking forward to reading? Yes. So two things that I am really interested in these days. One has to do with what's called embodied cognition. It's how we learn our thoughts and feelings from our body's experiences. So a lot of us operate under the notion that we have these feelings and thoughts and that drives how we work in the world. Well, it turns out we're learning that there's a lot that, that happens in the world that then influences how we feel. And, and many of your listeners have probably seen the very, very popular TED Talk by Amy Cuddy about power posing, how you, if you stand in a certain way, not only do you look confident, but it actually changes your neurochemistry to make you feel more confident. So I'm very fascinated by that. And there's a, a book that's on my bookstand now uh, called How the Body Knows the Mind, or How the Body Knows Its Mind by uh, Baylock. She's a professor out of the University of Chicago, and I very much look forward to reading that and learning more about what we can, how we learn from, from the environment. And then the other thing I'm really fascinated by is, is what I call spontaneous speaking. So a lot of what the book is written towards and what you and I have talked about is planned presenting, where you've got some time in advance and you can figure out what it is you want to say. But a lot of communication, a lot of our presenting is spur of the moment stuff. You're, you're asked to give feedback or you're asked to stand up and introduce somebody or somebody asks you a question and you have to respond. So I'm really fascinated by how we, we handle and manage spontaneous speaking. And I'm relying on work in improvisation. Uh, that's a theater or artistic approach to acting. 
And there's a, a great book I've been referred to by many people called Improv Wisdom by Madsen, Improv Wisdom. And in it, I, I hope to learn techniques to help with spontaneous speaking. So those are the two books that I'm really interested in, How the Body Knows Its Mind and Improv Wisdom. Well, these are great. We're going to have another great set of show notes here. And as a matter of fact, I will include Amy Cuddy's TED Talk. It really is good. I've uh, had the opportunity to see that. Matt, how can listeners best find out more about you and your book? Great. So for the book itself, I refer people to a website I curate. Uh, it helps and has lots of resources for managing anxiety and becoming a confident, compelling speaker. It's called No Freaking speaking.com, nofreakingspeaking.com. And to learn more about me and the services that my consulting firm offers, people can go to boldecho.com, B-O-L-D-E-C-H-O.com, Bold Echo. The name of the book is Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, 50 Techniques for Confident, Calm, and Competent Presenting. The author is Matt Abrahams. Matt, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. But don't let the end of this episode be the end of your learning. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for show notes, free resources, and guides. And be sure to join the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Till next time. <laughs>